This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk, and financial solutions. Fundies called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Well, Luke Winchester, thanks very much for making a debut on Talk Your Book. Really excited to, to sit down and chat with you. I've thought before we get into your, your stock pick, if you could tell us a little bit about Meriwether Capital, um, how that came about, and uh, and I, I guess to touch on the obvious, what a bloody challenging time to, to launch a fund that you did. So tell us a bit about Meriwether. Yeah, so Meriwether Capital, we're a um, small micro cap fund. Um, as you said, we launched back in November. Um, I like to tell people it was about a week after the peak in the NASDAQ. So at the time, didn't realise how tough it was going to be, but, but here we are. Um, you know, pure micro cap fund. We launched with about five mil under management um, with the, the current markets. We're sitting a bit over four today, but um, you know, hopefully survive the worst of that volatility coming out the other side now. Um, but it's been a you know it's been a trial by fire, but but a, a good thing. Um, you know, a lot of people said to me when I launched, um, you know, attracting a good investor base is probably the most important thing you can do. I, I really tried to do that. Um, I didn't think we'd be tested so early, but so far, um, you know, the support from the investors has been fantastic. Um, you know, some have, have topped up into the weakness, but um, even beyond that, just a, a lot sort of, um, you know, reaching out, making sure that we're doing well, sticking to the process. Um, and, you know, as, as we all know, we go through these periods and um, as I've been saying to people, that creates the opportunities that come out the other side. So still confident we can do really well. Um, you know, it's probably good to get out of the way when we're small and we come out of the side and, and, and grow. And you sort of had a bit of fame in the microcap world before launching the fund. Uh, certainly, I think you were the best performer on Strawman, which for those who don't know is sort of a website for stock pickers that sort of share their ideas and investment process. And it's a pretty small community, the microcap uh, landscape. Has that sort of helped build a fund, the fact that I guess you'd already built up a level of trust um, you know, with a, with a follower base before you actually decided to, to take the plunge and take on other people's capital? I think so. Um, you know, so, so prior to launching Meriwether, I was, I was working professionally industry, but um, yeah, Strawman was my personal investing. So I was managing that on the side. I was you know, able to do that where I was. Um, and uh, yeah, was, was lucky enough to come to Strawman at a, at a good time in the markets and, and a few of the stocks that I liked and did some research did quite well. So uh, put me on the radar of a few people um, and yeah I'm sure that, that that obviously helps to have that sort of you know um, public image in the market or, or support from people um, and so when I launched Meriwether, Meriwether with the help of um, Harley Grosser and, and what he's doing at ARC um, I think it was certainly a consideration that you know I wasn't someone coming out of a large fund management business broking house or, or investment bank but I had something we can build with particularly in that micro cap space like you said where that that community is very very small and, and you certainly get to know one another and it's a really underrepresented space particularly by fund managers the micro cap area which means there's huge opportunities but the reason it's underexplored is because the fees tap out because your fund can only grow to a certain amount what sort of level do you think your farm can grow to before you'll start to tap out and yeah. be challenging to hit the opportunities? It's, a good, it's, like? a, it's, a, it's, a, it's such a good point. I, I think you're right. I think that is liquidity is the biggest constraint for people. So you have to um, manage that yourself, um, you know, through your positions and, and through your fund size. So um, my um, uh, mandate from Meriwether Capital, I say micro cap sort of sub two, three hundred mil. 
Um, I think you can run a fund sort of 40, 50 mil um, up to that level. Um, and, and a few people I know in the space have sort of capped themselves around that, maybe a soft cap a little bit before and a, and a hard cap later on. Um, because you're right, you've seen, you've seen so many people start in sort of micros and smalls and as their funds get bigger and they're forced up into that liquidity into the mid caps and large caps, um, they often struggle to perform because you've, you know, you've found your niche um, in, in micro caps or small caps. Um, and of course, this is much more competitive at the larger end of the market. So it's a balance that you have to be aware of. You have to, um, uh, you know, manage that um, and, and, and be clear with your investors about the, 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 with your investors and yourself, I guess, about, you know, the spaces where you're playing and where you think your edge is. And what stock did you want to talk about today? Well, you know, talk about global health. So to me, you know, classic micro cap, 20 mil market cap, a lot of people would shudder at that sort of number. Um, you know, I talked to a lot of people in the industry who, they won't even look at stocks that are under certain market caps um, because they know liquidity is going to be so poor. But, um, you know, that, that brings the opportunities. And, and, you know, I just like to rattle off some of the names to people of stocks that have, have been micro caps in the past. You know, I remember Altium when it was a 20 mil market cap, um, Dicker Data, Objective Corp. Um, you know, these are some of the success stories that start off as micro caps. So I'm here trying to find the next one. Global Health has some of those characteristics. So I thought we'd have a chat about it today. And what's the top down view of the, of the business? Yeah, so medical software, you know, as the, the name sort of implies. Um, it's it's um, the example of a stock that, that I actually like. So it's been listed for, for quite a long time. Um, the business has been around since the 90s and, and, and even listed now for a decade or two. Um, so that in itself brings some, some baggage. A lot of people know the stock, have owned it before, maybe you've ridden it up and down and you get um, some, some stigmas attached to it and whatnot. And so sometimes coming at it later on with a fresh set of eyes or, or, or where you think there might be something changing in the business, I think brings some, some wonderful opportunities. So um, Global Health, I think, at, at a time like that. So um, medical software um, focuses on electronic medical records and patient administration systems, so the, the two core softwares. There's some modules around that, some sort of value-added stuff around secure messaging, um, teleconference abilities now, which obviously, you know, was a, a nice boost through COVID. Um, but I've really got that core in that sort of patient administration system, um, really focused on that niche of smaller providers in community health, um, like um, community health providers, small hospitals. They've found a nice little niche in mental health providers as well. Um, they try not to go and compete with a large hospital group, so you won't see a Ramsey Healthcare running a global health software. Because um, they'll build their own or...? Some build their own. Most users actually, their, their biggest peers are, are large, large players over in the US. Um, so for those guys, you know, multi-billion dollar market caps, it doesn't make sense for them to come down into the small niches where global health plays, particularly because the software not only is highly customised, but it has to be highly adaptable. Um, you know, the medical funding system changes quite rapidly, um, not just within governments, but obviously as governments change. NDIS was the, the latest big change made to that to that system. So you need software that's able to quickly adapt and, and so that's where um, knowing your niche and, and having the right focus I think has been the, the right decision for global health. And what are sort of the different divisions that the company currently is targeting? So one of the main reasons I really like this business right now is um, they brought in a new CEO about a year ago. So Michael Davies, um, he brings enterprise experience from Macquarie Telecom. Um, so when I saw that announcement, you know, um, my eyes sort of opened wide. You don't often see, you know, Chief Revenue Officer at Macquarie Telecom, um, what theoretically looks like a step back to this tiny Aussie micro cap. Um, talking to him, he sees the opportunity to, to be a CEO and, and take this business and, and really drive it. So um, 
the first big change he made was to really focus that business. I, I think he saw a business that um, was doing a lot of different things, doing them well, but but really spread across, um, you know, uh, different types of software and modules, different customers, different geographies. And as I said, he's really refocused it back to that community health, small private hospitals and mental health. Um, even from the software suite, really focus it back to that core, um, what they call master care, patient administration and, and um, electronic medical health records. Um, so still doing the other software and will over time bring that into the master care system. Uh, but I think he looked at the software and sort of said it was a bit, you know, it had different brandings, different target markets, different approaches to market. And so trying to um, focus back to, to what they do best. So I think he's now... Um, he's now done that. He's put some things in place around um, really bringing a sales sales engine in place and some enterprise experience to the business. Um, and that refocus, well capitalised, he's now looking to um, really drive penetration into those core three markets. And they've just hired an Asian, a, a CEO for the, the Asia geography. What's that strategy going to be like? Do you see them just looking at grow organically throughout Asia? I know they've earmarked a couple of countries they're going to target, or do you think they'll try and buy a masthead in each country and, and build from there? Well, to be honest, I, I think they're sort of playing it a little by ear. Um, they've highlighted the potential for M&A, they've highlighted the potential for um, you know, organic growth themselves. Um, the other thing they've highlighted, uh, probably the easiest way to expand is, is business to business relationships. So finding businesses over there that already have the customer penetration and looking to, um, you know, whether that be a reseller agreement or some sort of partnership agreement, bring their software into those, um, into those regions. Um, I, I think speaking to the company, the core patient administration and, and EMR um, will be a bit more difficult um, and where they're seeing probably the best traction at first would be some of those other modules. So um, around the secure messaging, the um, teleconference abilities, and another segment they've got is called LifeCard, which is like a personal health um, digital diary sort of thing. Um, so seeing something like that to sort of penetrate that digital health into the Asian region where um, it probably doesn't have as much penetration as what we have here in Australia. So. Long story short, look, I think they see the potential of the region like a lot of businesses do. How you attack it, it's such a big pie. Um, there's a lot of different ways to go about it. So I think they're sort of sitting back and, and, and testing these different things. Um, the appointment yesterday of a, of a CEO focus there I think makes a lot of sense because you've got Michael completely focused on the Australian division. Um, but I, I, I sort of sit back and, and wait to see how that, how that plays out. Um, where I do have a lot of faith, um, you know, speaking to Michael multiple times, um, he's very... Um, He's very aware of capital allocation and how, how best to think about it. And so I think, like everyone else, he sees that opportunity um, and, and, and I trust that he'll be um, you know, prudent about how he goes about it. And it's one of those businesses which you see a little bit where top-line revenue numbers look just OK. Um, but if you dig a bit deeper, their legacy revenue business is dropping quite rapidly and their recurring revenue is growing, you know, it looks like 10 to 12% a year on average, which, which is pretty strong. Um, what are, what are the professional services? What is the legacy business that's effectively being wound down? And, and do you think perhaps those top line numbers don't give a, a clear view of just perhaps how strong the revenue growth, revenue growth has been? I think, I think that's right. So the core business has always been the same. It's just how you bring that software to market. So they've made the transition a lot of other businesses have done, which is switching from that legacy license base to, to software as a service. 
Um, so you've seen that transition play out over the last few years, and and, and like a lot of businesses, that rev- that reported revenue number gets a bit lumpy because you know that that front loading of revenue now gets stretched out over many periods. Um, the other impact that, that you highlight there is professional services. Um, that's basically like implementation and support revenue. Okay. So very lumpy around big contracts uh, with with larger customers. You know, and and, and this is software that. It's quite sticky once you're in there, um, not only in the government space, but also in that medical space. You, you integrate quite deeply um, with the systems that these businesses run, um, as, you know, particularly like a patient administration system. So, you know, they can be six, nine, 12 months integrations that, that you know, Global Health will, will sit down with customers and go through. So that drives that professional services. Um, obviously, you know, revenue is revenue. It's cash in the door. It's nice. But, but I think you're right. The focus on the, on the quality revenue is really that recurring revenue, which is, has grown strongly. This year it was around, I think you're right, 12%. Um, the business has got an internal target of, of 25% over the next few years. Um, and they've announced some contracts, uh, particularly in the last about six, six odd weeks, I think three or four contracts. Um, you tally up the recurring revenue in those and, and they're starting to get towards that 25% number over the next couple of years. So that's where I'm getting a lot of certainty that that, re- that recurring revenue growth should continue to be, to be pretty solid. And historically, not quite cash flow positive yet, but pretty close. When do you think there'll be sustainably cash flow positive business? Well, historically, they have been um, cash flow positive. So, so you know, FY twenty, um, they just did last year. So. Yeah, they did. They did about a million dollars EBITDA. So, yeah. when Michael stepped into the business, um, he was very honest with the market and said, "Look, I'm going to put some some costs into the business. Um, you know, flesh out the, the C-suite, put some um, some sales staff on." So before he came on, they had one sales BDM, and, and you know, I think they've now got four or five. Um, and you know, just put some process in place to take this from what was basically a, a small family-run business to, to you know his his um, enterprise background kicking in. Um, so they've swung to probably about a you know one point five million dollar EBITDA loss this year. Some of that uh, you know is um, sticky costs that will stay there. Some some development that was being brought forward, uh, but that revenue growth will, will kick in. So I suspect sort of FY twenty three they'll be you know creeping back towards that break even, and then you'll probably see the real leverage kick in FY twenty four. So it's it's. Probably not the right stock for today's market. It's not spitting out a ton of cash right now, um, but it doesn't take a great deal of imagination to see it coming because they've announced these contracts in the last six odd weeks and are pretty confident of winning some more. So, um, you know, you have to be a bit patient because, like I said, long implementation cycles, six, nine months. Um, but as those implementation cycles come in, that recurring revenue then hits the base and, and starts to um, really tick up. Um, that, that cost base should stay, you know, pretty pretty flat from here. You'll get you'll get some, you know, general opex, but um, the, the leverage should really kick in after sort of FY21 when Michael came in and um, sort of tacked on just a, a bit of extra cost to, to, to flesh out the business. And balance sheet looks strong for a company this size. Maybe talk us through what their balance sheet's like, and and they've mentioned M and A. What sort of size businesses do you reckon they could? Take a take a swing at with the, the level of cash and potential debt they'd have available. Yeah, so they raised some capital last year, um, so you know it was a good time in markets to do it. Um, gets them about I think they've got about six odd mil cash on the balance sheet today, um, which is a good number relative to the size of their business. Um, they've flagged some M and A um, that could be in the southeast Southeast Asia, as you were talking about before. Um, you know, it's talking to Michael, he's also flagged there's a few opportunities um, domestically in Australia. So some examples of that would be these um, small community health um, regions, you know, scattered around, usually rural areas, of course, 
um, where some legacy software was developed 15, 20 years ago, uh, maybe by a small consulting firm or something like that. Um, and he's got the opportunity to come in, acquire it very, very cheaply and, and essentially pick up a, a customer really you base. buy customers, if you like. You buy the customers. The yeah, and then you roll out the Mastercare software over time. So there's a few of them. It's just about finding them and paying the right price. Um, I think he's mindful of where Global Health's valuation sits today versus sort of what you'd have to pay for something. Um, but yes, yeah, stuff like that could come could come along. Southeast Asia, um, I think I think M and A, it's it's certainly a possibility, um, you know. But I think the the organic growth is, is is the focus right now. So, you know, you keep your eyes open, but you're also you know, mainly focused on the prize. And you mentioned that they're a sticky customer base. Once once they've been won, perhaps the the sales timeline's pretty lengthy. But what sort of numbers are their churn? Do you know? Um, yeah, well, look, they don't report churn. I've, I've asked Michael about that. I think, he, you know, he, he said to me that they hadn't lost a customer for many years. Yeah, wow. Um, it's just the, the nature of that software. Um, you know, these organisations, the, the implement, the sales implementation so long that, uh, you know, they're unlikely to change. And it, 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 it sits so deeply in what they do. Um, it's, it's, it's very difficult to then go and change afterwards anyway. And health is a business where cutting costs is as much as you can, it's less about that and more about safety and the fact that something's working. Is that fair? That's right, yeah, yeah. So, it's, you know, medical software players on the ASX, there's a reason why the market really likes them. They, they are generally much more sticky than enterprise software where, yes, it's very cutthroat and, um, you know, you can often... Uh, interchangeability to other softwares, um, not too difficult and you can often just compete on price. Uh, medical software, much stickier. Um, but, you know, that comes with the catch-22 of um, much longer sales cycles, much longer implementation. So, um, you know, talking to Michael, some of the contracts they've announced recently, you know, they first spoke to these customers early last year. It's, it's a long time from that first coffee to, to when the contract's signed. And then also, you know, from, from market's point of view, a long time before implementation and, and cash hits the door. So it's one for patient investors, but, I, I, you know, the confidence I get from the stickiness of those customers that once they're in there, once they're integrated, um, they'll be there for a long time and that recurring revenue will keep just ticking up. And they've, they've spoken about uh, in-home care being a, a focus going forward. And you can see the government's have such a huge rush to get people out of hospitals and, and back into their homes and, and even with elderly people that are hesitant to go into, into aged care. Is that a sector you can see really growing strongly over the, the coming years? Well, like I said, I mean, they, they had a module before COVID that allowed for, for telehealth um, at, at the, the smaller level. Um, so, you know, COVID hits and there was an opportunity to really develop that, that module and, and on-sell it strongly to customers. Um, I think the area as well they're focused on with that sort of um, market is in the mental health space. Um, I think a lot more government funding's coming into mental health and they're, they're, they're quite well positioned. Um, the, the marquee contract they've got there is actually with the, um, the entire state of WA. Um, you know, the, the mental health institutions there to, to have their software. Um, and it's, it's quite different to, um, I guess, physical health in a sense where physical health is very much about treat a problem, get the patient out the door as quick as possible. Uh, whereas mental health is, is much more about ongoing treatment and as you said, how the, how the treatment goes from not just the hospital institution but also back to the home and, and ongoing. So having dedicated software for that I think is very interesting. Um, they've got that marquee contract with WA and I think they're confident of, of landing you know, other states as particularly the, um, stigma's not the right word, but, but maybe the focus on mental health um, you know, really gets increased and some funding comes strongly into the space. And... You know, companies, small software companies, 
one of the hard things to work out is if the software is actually defendable or if it's something where in you know five years time Google will be doing it for free or, or another tech company but I think you've touched on it already but the funding part of medical professionals is really complex whether it's private health insurance or Medicare or uh, the NDIS and obviously Google's not going to spend any time trying to uh, overcome that that problem is that niche aspect of this one of the parts that does make it defendable and you can't see it just being a yeah a free-to-use bit of software that tacked on by a major tech company I, I, I think so yeah you, you're playing in a small niche um, also a very a lot of regulation around that niche um, and as you said the funding is so complicated that that you know it's software that needs to be highly adaptable um, not just at a state level but a district level um, you know because these institutions can get funding from you know dozens of different sources um, it was it was the first question I asked Michael when I first spoke to him. So he came on as CEO. Um, the business had just raised capital, so they had a bit of cash in the bank. He'd made his intentions clear of what he wanted to do um, on the sales side of the business. Um, the anecdote I think he provided at the time was they tendered for two contracts the year before and won both of them. Um, and, and you know, from his point of view, at an enterprise level, um, you know, that to him that means we're not tendering enough. You know. We need to be tendering for more, so we need more boots on the ground. And a, um, you know, they didn't even have a CRM software or anything like that. So um, that, that's where he f his focus was initially. But, but one of the first questions I asked was, um, you know, the quality of the software. Because to me, if this was a, um, a situation where you had a, a good piece of software in a nice niche, you know, that had, had been around for quite a long time and a, a steady little moat, um, and someone with some some really good experience was about to step into this business and just bring some some real enterprise level um, processes and systems to it um, I was I was really interested where I was a bit apprehensive was is this a situation where he also needs to spend a couple of million dollars to get the software up to speed um, and he was quite clear that the software was in a really good space they were in the middle of the transition towards the software as a service um, he did say he would accelerate that, so I think he brought that, that sort of timeline forward by six, 12 months. So he ramped up some of the development spend, but it was just to do what the business was already planning to do, it was certainly not to overhaul the software suite. Um, from that point of view, I think the most he's really done is, is, is like I said, refocus the software. He'll rebrand it, he'll, he'll bring everything under that core master care brand, which has a, a good foothold in the market. Um, but really, the focus was you know, a good piece of software in its niche, um, but probably has underinvested in itself as a business. And so the potential to invest in that really drive it. Um, he said it would take time. You know, he said it would take about 12 months and, and you know, that's, that's, turn it, that's how it's played out uh, in the last sort of six odd weeks. Um, there's been a nice flurry of contracts and I think that momentum, it is certainly a space where customers talk to each other. So you can win one contract and, and people see what, what other, you know, what providers are using what software and what the feedback's like. So it doesn't surprise me that snowball has really started to, to accelerate and um, the last contract, you know, was actually the largest. So, um, you know, I think I think starting to hit its straps and that's why I'm getting a bit excited about the stock. And last quarterly, I think the numbers looked like it was about an 8 million annualised run rate and, a, like you said, a small loss. In 24 months, what do the full year numbers look like for it to be a success in, in your eyes? So um, there's two ways to think about it. One's, as I was talking about before, from a recurring revenue point of view. In a couple of years, I think they should be pushing you know, more than 10 mil recurring revenue, uh, maybe even as high as sort of 11, 12. Um, the professional services is, the, is the, the, the sort of swing factor to the, to the bottom line numbers in particular. 
Um, you know, what actually gives me a, a little bit of um, optimism there is, uh, as I said before, the last contract they won actually came with a pretty large slug of um, professional services, you know, $1.2 million over the next couple of years. So, um, yeah, that, that'll, that'll really boost that, that bottom line um, from that point of view. So I, I'm a little bit more optimistic they could be closer to that break-even number in FY23. And then I would think FY24, you, you know, you're now swinging well and truly into profitability. Maybe just a small number at that time, but from an incremental point of view, I think you'll see that incremental revenue dropping down quite strongly to the profit line. And outside of the growing revenue, what, what are the next milestones you could see them hitting that could lead to a rebate? I think just contracts, keep, keep winning contracts. They've been small, as I said, I think that's why they've sort of gone a little bit under the radar of the market. They haven't been, you know, a big contract that's $500 million a year. Um, they've been sort of one, 200,000 ARR being tacked on by each one. Um, but of course, like I said, there's been five or six over the last few weeks. So you start to add them all up and the next thing you know, you know, on my rough numbers, the business has, has tacked on sort of eight to 900,000 ARR on a, on a six mil base. So, you know, Good, good accretion coming in the next year or two as they implement these contracts. Um, so I expect them they'll probably stay small because they are in that niche where you know they're not going to win a Ramsey Healthcare or something that just sends the stock flying. Um, but it's certainly one that can compound over the next few years, um, not just uh, intrinsically itself, but but hopefully the um, you know, the share price as well. Beautiful, mate. It's a great place to finish. But uh, mate, really appreciate you coming on the show and great to uh, great to connect. Thanks, mate. Thanks, Luke. This episode of Talk Your Book was proudly brought to you by Honan, who go beyond a transactional insurance broker to deliver better outcomes for their clients. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Nothing you hear today should be considered investment advice. Please do your own research and seek out your own financial advisor before committing any capital to these markets.